0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As we begin in the book of Judges, I'm going to read the entirety of the first chapter all the way to a couple of verses into the second chapter. I'll give you an idea of where we're going, kind of explain it, and then we'll kind of pick it apart. In our time together. So last week, I began as an introduction to the book of Judges, a a journey and a summary of, of the Bible up to this point, and then a summary of what the book of Judges tells us we're going to see. And it concludes in the very end of the book of Judges with this ominous statement that there was no king in Israel, and so people did whatever they saw, whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, they did whatever they wanted. And so there's this climax that we're working to into the book of Judges of things getting progressively worse so that we'll see, without godly leadership, without a godly king and a godly direction, we will devolve into whatever we want to. And the path of destruction that we leave behind us will get broader and wider as we go. Apart from God's direction, God's mercy, and and the leadership of, of godly people that we see here, in the book of Judges, leading up to the kings that are anointed, inaugurated in the books to come, then we'll do whatever we want. And not only that, we'll think that what we're doing is right. I have never woken up on a given morning and said to myself, I'm going to do the wrong thing today. I'm going to do what's wrong. I'm going to do something irrational, illogical. And here's what I think I know about you. I bet every single day you wake up thinking the same thing. I, I bet none of you woke up this morning thinking, I'm going to do what's wrong. But instead, you woke up, whether you realize it or not, believing, I will do what is right in my own eyes. And so, as we kind of dig into what this means, to be sinful and broken and fallen people who think we know what's right, but fall painfully short of God's standard of what's right and wrong, we're invited into kind of a despair. And so I'll say this, as I did in the book of Ecclesiastes, as we walk through this, I'll begin, hopefully, with a question. Feel pretty good about yourself today? Let's fix that. Beginning in verse 1 of Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings, with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer, and Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter. For a wife, And Othmiel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksah as daughter for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Erod. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zaphath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is a name to its day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Shean and its villages, or Ta'anak and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, or for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alar, Alab, excuse me, or of Akzeb and Helbah, or of Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and the Beth Anoth became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down into the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harez and Aijalon and the Sha'albim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor and the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke, these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. What we have here is a geographical and theological history of the people of Israel taking over the promised land you catch that the list of geographical locations and the names of the tribes that inhabited them and the names of the peoples that inhabited them before they came in to drive them out and so if you have a a a set of maps in the back of your bible you'll see probably a map that even gives you a picture of what was going on and how the book of judges will now begin to walk us through a story of each of these tribes of the 12 tribes of of Israel, we'll see all 12 of them, and we'll even see a judge raised up for each of these different locations. And you'll see a history unfold for the next 21 chapters. But this first introduction that the book of Judges gives us, gives us a a, a quick layout of what's happening and then where it goes. And they are victorious, and they're obedient, but then they weren't. And what you see here, if you caught what, what should have been from the first half of this chapter, a list of victories, right? One after the other, and then this guy won, and then we won over there, and then we were victorious of God blessed us here, God blessed us. And you would think about 22 verses in, you'd be like, awesome, this is going to be a great book. God wins, people win, and then what happens after the but? Did you catch that? But then they didn't. And then instead of driving the people out, a list over and over, verse after verse, every seven in a row, did you catch that? Seven verses in a row. They didn't do this. They didn't drive out this person. They didn't drive out, and then it lists those tribes. And what I want you to begin to see here that the book of Judges invites us to consider is there is no such thing as half-hearted devotion. And for the Christian following Jesus, seeing him as Lord and Savior over all things, There's no such thing as half-hearted discipleship. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a half-hearted devotion. You can't be partially devoted to something. That's an oxymoron. The partiality of your devotion negates it completely. Because if you aren't fully devoted to it, then you're not devoted to it at all. And this passage here gives us a picture of, Of what it looks like to sort of obey God, to sort of think that God is Lord, to kind of love and follow God, to kind of keep His law, and to kind of be grateful for His blessing and provision, and to kind of think that God deserves at least some sort of acknowledgement, but only kind of. Now, up to this point, the Bible has been a picture of God's greatness. So here we are, right, from the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Right? These, the five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Penta, five, Tokos, scroll, like the first five scrolls of the Bible. The, literally, for the rest of the Bible, you hear it referred to as the law, if you will. Genesis is a story of, of God's building everything perfect and and people's rebellion against him. But yet there's a promise he gives to Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through this person. And the way I bless you, Abraham, and all of your family, is going to bless the whole world. I'm going to start something with you that will ultimately come to the salvation and blessing and restoration of everything that's broken. Abraham, the way you follow and obey me is going to testify to my goodness. But they don't they kind of do but then the next book is the book of Exodus where where even though they were they were taken into captivity into Egypt there there arose a pharaoh the ominous words that knew not Joseph right Joseph who had been delivered and in such marvelous ways he had been delivered from prison he was second in command but but then a pharaoh came after Joseph's death and he didn't love Joseph or his people and so when he saw the multiplication the rapid growth of the Israelites they begin to subject them to slavery and forced labor. And yet the book of Exodus is a story of how God didn't leave them there and delivered them miraculously, seeing amazing things happen. And then what follows in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus is a, is a picture of the holiness, literally of the Levites. We'll see that tribe later in this book. The priests... Will live a certain way and lead people to live a certain way because where they will live, it will look different if they live according to God's holiness. The book of Numbers is a story of the wandering. Numbers, it, don't don't be afraid. Like there's only. There's only a couple chapters that it's like, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. You can make it. At the beginning and the end of the book of Numbers are a census. A census for when they began wandering and a census for when they ended the wandering and were on the edge of the promised land. That's what the numbers are. You could say the, it's the book of a censuses. Sensai. Uh. And the before and after census of a wandering people. The book of Deuteronomy. Deutero, do du, like dual, right? Two. nomos, law, a second law. Right, it's a, it's, a, it's a fuller version of the law that we see given by Moses in Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments, this is a fuller law of what it will look like to live by God's promises in a new land. And then, you're right up to where they get to the promised land. God's delivered them, he's going to deliver them into this new place, and they get to, right up to the promised land, which is Canaan. And so the book of Joshua, immediately after Deuteronomy, is the book of a leader that is Joshua who helps lead them in. You remember there's stories, like one of the first cities they come to, Jericho, and God says, hey, put down your weapons and get the band back together. And then they march around the city, playing instruments loudly for many days and nights until finally, miraculously, the blowing of the trumpets caused the walls of the city to fall down And God grants them this city. And the story of Joshua is this conquest of God's provision, giving the promised land, and they're able to drive miraculously people out of the land that God has promised for them, all the way till we get to the book of Judges. So if Joshua is about the taking of the promised land, Judges, as we saw here, is about the possessing and settling in the promised land. It's like the second conquest of Canaan. And each tribe is meant to, as you saw that list, right? Each of these tribes are meant to nail down. And they're meant to settle into the land allotted to them. And they're meant to drive out all the pagan idolaters so that they would live in a way that testified to a radical devotion to God. But they don't. One of the ways I would say the book of Judges is they get to this promised land, this inheritance meant... For their fathers. The book of Judges is in many ways a story of kids and their inheritance. Kids and their inheritance. They're like the second generation. And this is important for some of you who are economist nerds in the room, right? Some of you know the kind of the three, like the, the three-generation model of, of wealth in Western society. There's there's typically a phase whether you're and, and some research will show this and bear this out, like the Rockefellers, there's there's a generation of building and an accumulation of wealth. And then the next generation is devoted to just maintaining the wealth. And as soon as they go into the maintenance phase, they don't really want want to bravely accrue wealth anymore. They start to maintain it. They start to experience decline. Until the third generation comes off, and you know what they do. They just spend the wealth. And so in this sense, we're like in the second generation. This is a story of these people with their inheritance, They inherited this land from their parents, but instead of boldly and radically believing that God had called them to be and do something in this land, they say, nah, let's just kind of protect what we've got. You can see this at the beginning of each of the books of the Bible up to this, right? I encourage you. Read Exodus, maybe even Joshua over the next couple of months to understand this. Exodus begins with an ominous quote I gave you just a minute ago which is the death of joseph but then joshua begins with the death of moses you could skip even further on where first kings begins with the death of king david and this filler this history of the before and after god's people receiving their promise and then them anointing a king it begins with what did you catch it the death of joshua And the first question they ask is, okay, now that our leader has died, who will go up for us? What do we do next? And so the book of Judges is in a lot of ways their way of saying, eh, I don't know. And we get these dark heroes, these kind of really flawed and sinful leaders. Even the word judges fits better to what we would use as the word "leader." And it fits into a time where even the Bible tells us where we are. So look at, I can read this to you, 2 Kings 23, verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover, this is a time of revival that King Josiah was leading his people through. For no such Passover had been kept since what? The days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. So even later, the book of Kings refers to this period of time where people evidently stopped celebrating God's deliverance. One of the things I'll flesh out over the next couple of months, there is not one single instance in the book of Judges of people getting together to worship the Lord and sacrifice to the Lord and thank the Lord. This one little bit here, this this little pseudo-sacrifice that took place at the beginning of chapter 2 is it. There is no moment of corporate gratitude, corporate worship, did you catch what they said? Well, that's just what they did. They did whatever they want. They didn't celebrate the Passover. They didn't thank God for his deliverance from slavery. What did they do? In fact, they started forcing other people into slavery. So the first thing he does, verse 1 and 2, after the death of, death of Joshua, they do the right thing. They in, did you catch that? They inquire of the Lord. Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Thank God, verse 2, the Lord responds, Judah will go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Don't miss this. Even though their leader had died, the Lord has kept his covenant promise with the next generation. Now that's important. The promises of God are not just for one single person. God never blesses a person for their own sake. He always blesses a person to be a blessing. The the promises God keeps are too big to keep secret. They're contagious, they overflow. They, as we talk in terms of the gospel and the blessing of God's redemptive power in Christ, it multiplies. It can't stay stagnant. It's not static, it's dynamic. And you get a hint of that. The Lord, even though even though this is about to happen, what did the Lord look, I'm going I'm to keep my promise to these people. Now that's important because they just came from a, a miraculous deliverance of the promised land where an entire generation who rebelled against God was allowed to die in the wilderness. So don't miss the other side of this coin. While God will bring about the blessing for generations to come because His glory can't be contained by one generation, His glory does not fit into the good old days. On the other hand, it doesn't bother the Lord to allow a rebellious and disobedient generation to die in the wilderness slowly and painfully and aimlessly in order to bless the next now that's important for us remember we saw last week human beings first response to blessing is always disobedience it's always to kind of pat ourselves on the back for the blessing and instead of thanking god for being the source of blessing we just immediately go like i'm awesome right i talk to i i throw you cat people under the bus all the time because you know what I'm talking about and you know I'm right. There's, there's like a cat theology and a dog theology, right? A dog like sees all the gifts you give it. Like you give me food, give me shelter, play with me. And the cat gets the exact same thing and says, you, you, know, you play with me, you hang out with me. And a dog says, look at all these amazing things I have. I have, I have, an, I have, you know, I have an owner, I have, I have furniture, I have a bed, I have food. My owner is awesome. A cat gets all those same things and says, hey, I've got my own furniture, my own house, food, bed. I must be awesome. And you know I'm right. The only reason a cat is alive is because it's adorable. If it could kill you like its older brothers, which are only allowed in zoos, it would. I want to illustrate the point. Did you get like that. There's a way to receive gifts in a way that you just effusively overflow with gratitude, and there's a way to receive gifts that spurs you into entitlement. And in a sinful, fallen, broken world, unfortunately, <laughs> the, the dogs are the only one who do it well the rest of us gravitate towards receiving the gifts of God and thinking very highly of ourselves. Don't miss this. God, even in the midst of that, is going to keep his promise to his people. Even in the midst of that. Like, right before it goes bad, what do we do? And they said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you in this way. And then you get this cool, like, did you catch it? For the rest of this book, there's just gonna be really vivid, amazing stories. They're just vivid, amazing stories. They're gonna be bizarre and entertaining. And you started to get some of those. And one of the first stories we begin to see here, Judah's gonna go up and he's gonna give them the land. But, but then one of the one of the most difficult issues of the book of Judges and the book of Joshua, namely the holy war or the conquest of the promised land, is already addressed. It says, I'm gonna go with you, and then. Judah says, "I'm going to take Simeon with me." Now there are a couple ways of reading this. On one hand, there's a beauty in this. There's a the oneness of God's people, God's sufficiency, His promise, like that covenant that He reminded them in in verse two. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to bless you. Is often displayed in the unity of His people. Now we'll look back on it in just a moment, but. Judah says, and he doesn't need to. If you you look at the maps of this, Simeon is kind of like this small little spot in the middle of Judah. And yet Judah says, okay, even though it wasn't militarily necessary, I'm going to bring my brother with me. And at first you see this picture of like, oh yeah, these people work together. That's important because for the rest of this chapter, a picture of the disjointedness of God's people becomes pervasive. But there's something amazing about the oneness. There's this we-ness of God's blessing. A weeness is not me, but we begin to experience God's blessing in some way. And so Judah invites his younger brother into it. Now that's important because this is something the New Testament even picks, on, picks up on. Ephesians chapter 3 begins to tell us before this amazing benediction, you've heard me recite, right, to him who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than all I get. Right, you heard me say this. But right before that, there's this prayer in Ephesians 3 that, that for this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God now to him be right so did you catch that little phrase in there even in the Christian church, is meant to comprehend the love of God. But did you catch what it said? His wish for them is that they would comprehend the love of God with all the saints. Don't miss what that's saying. Apart from experiencing the love of God in community, you can't experience the love of God at all. And this will be a theme. As we see the disjointedness, Is the minute disobedience and rebellion against God starts to take root in these people, the way they begin to destroy others gets worse and worse and worse. And the Christian church comes along. And I know some of you have had awful experiences with the Christian church. I know somebody in the name of Jesus has harmed you and alienated you. And all I want to say is for, forgive them. They're just sinful like you. And there's this grace that only can be experienced in community. And our culture says the best gifts are the ones you can keep to yourself, right? Me. And we often read that and we're like, yeah, I can begin to comprehend the depth and the breadth, right? What's this big language, right? I can can begin to comprehend the depth of God's love for me. And it says, no, that's, that's, that's not where you experience the breadth and depth of God's love all the way to the book of Revelation, the breadth and depth of the God's love is experienced among the nations. And apart from God's blessing through you to the nations, there is no blessing or experience of God's kindness at all. So this is one of many vivid accounts of how people work together and then after this, don't. And then there's this other account. Did you catch it? Adonai Bezek, 70 kings with their thumbs, verse 7, and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. And so this ruthless king who used to, every king he would take over, he would cut off their hands, their thumbs and their toes and have them serve me. Now all of a sudden he's given a dose of his own message, a dose of his own medicine. But I want to walk you through some books of the Bible so that you'll understand where this comes from, because this is a deep theological. A deep theological quandary going on here, namely, people commanded by God to go in and slaughter and drive out people, and that makes us very uncomfortable, right? The picture of a holy war makes us very uncomfortable. So let me give you spend a good deal of time on this. So if you want to, you can join me in that blue Bible in verse 88. But I'm going to start with verse uh, verse one of Deuteronomy chapter nine. Verse one of Deuteronomy chapter nine. Hero Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. Okay, so. Deuteronomos, the second law, the full, the like a, a filled-out version of the law of God's people. They're going go to go into to take over Canaan. You are to cross over the Jordan today to go into dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. So start there. You're going to take over land from people who are bigger and stronger than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. And people great and tall, the sons of the, of the Anakim, whom you know and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So the Lord's going to go kill some people. Now you're thinking, I thought this was going to get better. No, no. It gets worse before it gets better. Listen to what it says in verse 4. because. 4. Like, there's something in you that would be like, this is crazy, right? On one hand, you're like, I don't like a God who, who, is, who is wrathful against sin. But maybe from the other hand, you're kind of like, awesome. We can, in the name of God, kill people. You're both wrong. Verse 4 says it this way. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust him out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And it re- repeats it, because we forget. Verse 5. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse six Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. <laughs> Three times. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Don't miss, what he, don't miss what he's saying there. Like, You are not righteous. You are the opposite of righteous. You are stubborn, hard-hearted, you are difficult to deal with, and rebellious. And yet, I'm giving you a promised land, to be clear, not because you're righteous, but because I will wrathfully judge the wickedness of these people. And you'll say, well, what is that wickedness? Well, turn to me. If You have a blue Bible and it's from page 56, but Leviticus chapter 18 gives us a picture of this. And so if you're in a Bible reading plan, and I know you might get stuck somewhere in Leviticus, I want you to, to get a window into what this book is all about. Leviticus is a picture of the holiness of God's people that they will begin to experience when they take in the land. So beginning in, uh, in chapter 18 in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Hear me clearly, right? Why would God run these people out of Canaan and give this blessed land to them, right? We know for sure it's not because they're righteous. They receive God's gift, not because they deserve it, but he says, I am the Lord your God. Verse three, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules and if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am God the Lord. And then what goes on for the rest of it is an outline of what the conduct of the Canaanites looked like. Now this at this point you're like, "Well, what is what does this old book have to do with me?" And what goes on after that are are pictures of the ways in which God's people will understand sex, sexuality and experience the good gift of sex. And there's a bunch of do's and don'ts after that. And you'll say, Well, this this is so outdated, we don't think that anymore. I don't know. If you read it closely, it says there was this weird pervasive obsession with nakedness. Apparently, this was a culture obsessed with sexualizing the body. It was a culture obsessed with sex so much that they were pressing sexuality and, and sex onto young people before they should and onto family members. And this culture of the Canaanites was obsessed with sex. I know that has nothing in common with American western culture. I know you I know that I know there's I know there's no fights going on right now anywhere about sexuality. There's no disagreements. There's nobody right now in our culture saying that I can have sex with whoever I want. Don't oppress me. It's my body. I can show whatever I want to whomever I want. Don't miss. God help us. Leviticus still works and is helpful for today. Why? Because the ultimate goal, look at verse 24. Do not make yourself unclean. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things. After just listing, hey, this is, this is bad. You're just going to look, if you, if you engage in sexuality and think of sexuality in this way, you're just going to look like the Canaanites. Now, this is important because this was a group of people, the Canaanites, who, who regularly thought it was okay to burn and sacrifice their children. And they worshipped Baal or Baal and Asher. And they believed that the ways that, that they would worship Baal and Asher was, was based on their beliefs and study of of Baal and Asher, that is these fertility gods and goddesses that when Baal and Asher got together, they blessed humankind by copulating, by having sex. And so the way that you worshipped Baal and Asher is that you would go to the temple where there were many, many, many prostitutes on the payroll and you would worship God by soliciting sex from a prostitute. And that was worshipful. They deified sex they found their identity in sex. Again, please. This is literally what is happening around us. Like, we don't even know how to talk about people apart from their sexuality. Like, like that is now our identity. As though, this, as though this thing that God has given us is who we are. And he says, if you do that, you're just going to look like the Canaanites. You're just going to look like the people around you. And you know what will happen? You'll stop experiencing my blessing. For by all these nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. Verse 25. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules. And do none of these abominations either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations. Did you catch that? Like the Canaanites who were here before you, this is their thing. Such that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was there before you, namely the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the the persons who do them shall be cut off from among your people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. So don't miss this. He gives them the Canaanites, and he gives them the land of Canaan, the promised land, because they were enemies of God. And that's important. You can see this again in Deuteronomy chapter 18. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations over and over and over again. It says, look, you're going into this promised land, and the reason you're going there is because my judgment is against their rebellion. What they say about me based on their behavior is corrupt and rebellious. And so therefore, my wrath is against those enemies. Now, this is important. Did you catch that little story of Adonai Bezek? This is where we might come along and say, that's harsh, that God would punish sinful people. Notice, the Bible doesn't think that. And even the guy who had his, <laughs> who had his thumbs and toes chopped off didn't think that was harsh. Did you catch it? Adonai Bezek, verse 7, 70 kings. Uh, I've done this for them. And then what does he say? So as I have done, so God has repaid me. It's interesting to think that this is cruel or harsh is not a biblical view. In fact, the, God, the, the person who was a recipient of it was like, you're right, I had that coming. Right? Like They tortured him and he was like, yeah, I can see that. It's us. We're the ones who have a hard time believing that God is sovereign over all things, that he genuinely judges sin. And there are enemies of God. But the reason it's important for us to think about this is because this concept of holy war that we read about in the book of Judges is a preview and picture of what God will do to his enemies on the cross. So if you read this and you go, well, I guess we can go do these things. We can go do whatever we want. No, the point of this is they're, they're, they're giving a window, an image of how God will destroy his enemies. And God will and has dealt with his enemies in jesus christ and we look at the cross and we realize how seriously god takes sin That he would send his son to destroy death hell and the grave on our behalf it's very serious but it also protects us if you're tempted to go like oh okay well now i can go start a holy war and like you know kick people out and say yeah this is mine the lord said so no christian the lord has dealt with his enemies at the cross the lord has crushed the grave such that now we can taunt the lord's dead enemies right death where is your sting where's your victory thanks be to god that we receive the victory now in christ jesus our lord so so be careful put put your stick put your sword down don't go in thinking you can engage in a holy war the holy war has been completed and Jesus is victorious. It's our job now to testify to the one who is conquered. So be careful. The reason we see Jesus even in the book of Judges is because this is a preview of what God will do to the enemies. Right? This, the promised land that they got is like, nah. I don't know if I really want to live there. Do you know why? But it's just a preview of this pleasurous paradise that you and I will receive when one day we will be around the throne in his presence so even the story of this guy who gets his thumbs and gets his toes chopped off, it's an homage for when they used to anoint the priests on their thumbs and toes and it's a picture of these people will not be priests in God's new promised land But you'll also see something else that I want you to see, and we're going to dig into this later, but you you, you get a preview of it. Did you get how awesome Judah looks in this? A whole bunch of this is devoted to Judah. Because one of the primary motives of the book of Judges, the argument that's being made, is that the rightful king will come from the lineage of Judah, not from Benjamin. Namely, in a couple books, when Saul is anointed from the tribe of Benjamin, and he turns against God and thinks he's like this priest king, Ah, uh-huh, Jesus, right? The real priest king. When he rebels against God and takes the place of a priest king, we're meant to see from the book of Judges. No, no, no. The rightful king comes from Judah. So one of the things you'll see now and the rest is Judah looks really good. They're not that great, but they look really good. And it's meant to be an appetizer for us that we go, oh, something good's coming from Judah. Something good is going to come from this lineage. Look at the other story we saw there. We get a picture of this guy named Othniel. He's going to show up in the third chapter. It's going to be really funny. Prepare for that. There's going to be a lot of childish humor in chapter 3. If you read the book of Judges this week, which I encourage you to do, you'll get it. Get all the giggles out now. But we get introduced to this guy. And mixed into this provision of God's, and like God's sufficiency and this conquest are these neat stories, vivid accounts. And one of them is a little love story. Did you catch that? This picture of A man who's like, look, if you'll go kill these people, you can have my daughter. And then there's like this beautiful picture of Othniel like, I will win her hand, right? And he (laughs) goes, he does it. And again, unless you think that, she's like some princess in a castle who's a pushover. Did you catch what she does? She's like, listen here, you need to tell my dad to give us more stuff. Did you see it? And before he could do it, when she came to him, she urged him, that is, that is Oathnail, to ask her father for a field. But then she, <laughs> I love it, and she got off her horse and was like, listen, you, not only are you going to give me something here, you're going to give me a blessing and you're going to give me some water with it. And there's this beautiful little... Vivid picture of of something, but don't miss that what you're going to see for the rest of the book of Judges, it is the unlikely and the outsider. In this case, Aksa, a Kenite, and a woman who displays real radical faith. You're going to see this again. A lot. But something amazing happens, the story shifts. Now it's pretty cool because Aksa actually embodies the right way to receive God's blessing. Did you catch it? Bless me. Give it to me. Give me the provision to be sustained and live in the land that you've given me. She knows. She knows the ultimate goal is that God's people are to secure, settle in, and rest in God's promise so that we can worship Him without compromise. And she gives us this little glimpse into that. But what happens next is this a telling of a tale of rebellion where people didn't do exactly what God had called them to do. Over and over and over and again. Beginning in verse 27, seven in a row, Manasseh did not drive. Ephraim did not drive out. And over and over and over again, instead of driving out the idols and the idol worshipers from their midst to enjoy God's promise where they could obey him wholeheartedly, what did they do? They made friends with it. Don't miss that. Half-hearted obedience is full disobedience. The temptation for us is no different. Often the temptation for us isn't to just look at God and say, I do what, I, I'm do. i not going to obey any of the things that you tell me to do. The temptation we face is to kind of say, all right, I'll take some of your promises. I'll take the benefits that are good for me. But this other part of my life this other stuff you're talking about that's mine god I'll, I'll let you have all of this but you can't have this part of my life i told you the story of the canaanites right imagine you come and you let's throw these people out and then they, imagine maybe they must have been good evangelists because they were like whoa guys don't throw us out let me tell you the good news of our god the good news of our god you can go down to the temple solicit a temple prostitute, there's no judgment or shame in expressing your sexuality. In fact, we call it worship. You can see a whole bunch of people who are like, all right, this sounds like a good religion. And so they say, ha- ha- maybe instead of like totally throwing them out, let's keep some of the practices of this culture. Did you catch what they did? Even though they knew what it was like to be in slavery, did you see what they did multiple times here? Instead of driving them out, them and their idols, what they said, you know what, let's benefit from these guys. If God's so mad at them, let's use them a little bit. Let's make them into our labor force. And they forgot that just a few generations before, they had been used and abused, and yet God had delivered them. And instead of beginning to model that, they said, no, let's do that too. Let's make some slaves of our own. All the way to the point where, did you catch that? There was a, a weird little account there. That instead, of, instead of taking over these people, the descendants of, of some of these others, they they, they went up against them and then and it says that they they couldn't drive them out because they had chariots of iron and while it said they could not, look how it gets explained in verse uh, in the first few verses of chapter two God says, "You have not obeyed at the end of verse two, my voice don't miss this. they said they could not. But God saw their heart and realized what they were really saying is they would not. When we tell God, I can't, we almost always mean I won't. When God says, this is what I have for you, this is the blessing I have for you, and you say, I can't. It almost always really, I said almost always, I wanted to just say always. I can't, I mean, if you have an example of this, like I told God I can't and it wasn't disobedience. like Okay, good luck with that. But I, I, I want to leave room for that. But I'm tempted to say, whenever we say to God I can't, it's almost always I won't. Because think about it, if God says go and to do and, and we say I can't, what are we saying? You're dumb. I'm smarter than you. You don't really know what's good. You don't know what can and can cannot happen. And even though they were called to settle into the land, they used something noble like I can't to cover up the fact that they were rebellious. They wouldn't. And then you see at the very end, did you catch that? We read the first five verses of chapter 2. They weep. We'll talk about it more next week. They weep and have a big show. But I already told you the rest, the next 20 chapters of how they disobeyed. And for all their weeping and crying and lifting their voices and sacrifices, their hearts were turned against God. So, what now? I told you you wouldn't feel good about yourself. What now? Why'd you do this, Jonathan? Why'd you drag me through this whole thing? Why'd you rub us, rub our noses into this? Because this is a story of God's grace. Why did I point out all the flaws in these people? So that you would realize that what God is going to do in and through them is completely and totally unmerited. It's completely and totally undeserved. So I would ask you, are are there places in your life where you know you're just using God to get what you want, but you won't let him have access to the, to the things you're hiding? Is there that thing you don't want anyone else around you in the room to know? Do you feel it? Do you know what it's like to say, God, I want to do all this, but not really. I kind of want to keep these things to myself. Do you know what that feels like? Can you relate to this? Like, do you, know, do you know what it feels like to not be fully devoted to anything? To make promises you can't keep? And especially, do you know what it's like to, to not be able to be fully devoted to what's right and every chance you get you kind of slip back into doing what's selfish and you harm others in the process and you don't, you don't live for God's glory but you live for your own pleasure and glory. Do you know what that feels like? Do you feel the despair of that? Do you recognize what a failure you are? Do you feel the weight of how incapable you are of doing even things that are good and are by your own standards? Do you feel the weight of it? Does it crush you? Because it should, and here is why. God uses half-hearted obedience and half-hearted repentance to demonstrate the fullness and sufficiency of his grace. Do you know what it's like to feel like a failure? Do you know what it's like in your own heart to have loves pulling in different directions? You can't be fully devoted to God or any one thing. Friend, hear the good news. This is a story about how God shows the fullness of his grace to the half-hearted people in front of him. And God uses our half-heartedness, our wandering, and our meandering to demonstrate his consistency. He shows our failure to demonstrate his success. Friend, this story for the rest of the Bible is how God calls sinners to himself And takes all the perfection of his son and gives it to them and absorbs all their failures, all their half-heartedness and takes it to the cross and pays it in full. Don't miss the good news. Be invited into the despair of life apart from God so that you begin to experience the joy God can use any of these messes to demonstrate how gracious he is. I don't know if you caught some of that. There's no mess too great for His grace. There is no one so disobedient and half hearted that He cannot love and restore them by His mercy. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you see fit not to demonstrate your goodness through perfect people, through people who have it all figured out. But you delight in showing your grace in and through the broken. God, if there's some in this room, maybe they're just feeling the despair of life and they're feeling hopeless, but even now they begin to hear the story of God using these broken people as an invitation to trust that he can make amazing things happen out of any mess. If there's someone in this room, maybe we know we've rebelled against God, and, and maybe now, even in our own desires and our own wants, we, we feel conflicted and we want lesser things. We, we want to find our identity in other things. Would you begin to show that even now, like there, you were calling us to yourself. You are calling us radically by your grace. Not because we are great, but because your grace is great. Grant comfort to those of us who are weary and wandering. God, take our little mustard seed of faith. It's nothing. It's worthless. But because the object of our faith is your very character and nature, it has infinite value. Restore the broken encourage the weak today. God, for those of us, maybe we know this good news that you show grace to us, you show mercy to us, but yet we regularly, like these people, we just forget. We just kind of assimilate into the environment around us. We begin to think, just a little bit of compromise here, just a little bit of disobedience here. Who's it going to hurt? Remind us now that That kind of half-hearted devotion is something to be repented of. It's something to be confessed and admitted. And when we do, when we finally admit that we don't have the faith and we don't have the virtue to earn your love, may we then, in that moment, experience the fullness of your unmerited favor and love towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.